Hi, this is Kirby Shibaga. This is Nirav Desai. And along with Stephen Shu, I'm Vinay Narayan, and welcome to this episode of XRC Pod, your XR podcast. And in today's episode, we're going to actually kick off a new series called Leaders in XR. Being in an emerging category, not only your products, but the leaders are so important in bringing all of this stuff to life. There's so much to navigate through, and we're extremely excited to have Joe Michaels, the Chief Revenue Officer of Haptex. Uh, and Haptex is a leading provider of touch feedback technology and the maker of Haptex gloves. He's also spent over a decade at Microsoft and BizDev, negotiating partnerships with major media and technology companies. And he's also the founder of two e-commerce startups. And we're going to learn a lot more about Joe. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Really great to be with you guys. Yeah, Joe, we're, we're super stoked to have you um, for a variety of reasons. One, I think being a hardware company, uh, in an emerging industry, it's got to be one of the most challenging things. Um, and but you guys have been able to na navigate that pretty successfully. Um, and success, you know, definitely is a is is a relative term in XR, especially because just because you're successful today doesn't guarantee your success tomorrow. Uh, so your perspectives on just being able to navigate all that is going to be super critical and and also very valuable. Uh, so excited to see how uh, today's conversation pans out. You know, we really want to talk about what does it mean to be a hardware startup. Uh, in an emerging category? What, is, what does leadership really mean? Um, as well as what does it mean to pivot? Uh, we're always confronted and given so many opportunities to either do something new or better, or some things just may not pan out as quickly as we wanted to. And there's, there's a lot of pressure, whether it's internally from your team members, whether it's from your partners or from your investors, uh, to really start to make traction uh, especially in, in a time and space where things are really evolving. So it'll be great to go through that. But before we get into those topics, let's get to know Joe a little bit better. So here's a game we're going to play. It's called Two Truths and One Lie. This is the first time I played this game without drinking. So this is going to be interesting. <laughs> All right, so Nirav and Kirby, you guys have to just, just figure out which one of these three facts are actually the lie. And Kirby, no punishment for you because you're a nice guy. And Nirav, if you get it wrong, you cannot talk about Bruce Springsteen for an hour. What? Yeah, it's well, we're gonna... gonna have to make this a podcast extra long, then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, here, here we go. So two truths and one lie, Joe Michaels. So Joe was on an episode of Friends. Joe started a rock band. Joe also was an English major. Which one of those three things is the lie? Before Kirby and Nirav answer, those of you listening, what do you think? Which one is Joe's lie? Go ahead and actually en enter your comments in the post. And all right, guys. So, what do you think? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say you you were not an English major. Wow. All right. Yeah. I mean, his English is pretty good. So I think uh, that's 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 an extra stab. What about you, Kirby? It's a uh, wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. Let's go with uh, let's go with friends. Excellent. All right, Joe, which one is it? Well, uh, Vinay really threw a ringer here because all three of these are true. I was on an episode of Friends. I did start a rock band and I was, in fact, an English major in college. So trick is on you guys. Yeah. Wow. And, which episode of Friends? Huh? <laughs> Yeah, that's a crazy story, um, and it's 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 like a you know great biz dev relationship led to one of the cool you know factoids of my life, 
Um, I was doing a deal with somebody who had a company and he was also one of the producers of Friends. And he said, I can't get away, you know, to negotiate this deal with you. Can we do it in L.A.? And would you mind, you know, if we did it? And maybe this was a great negotiating ploy on his uh, part. But he said, would you mind doing it right after, you know, you sit in on a recording of, of Friends? And uh, and I said, well, I, I guess we could do that. Sure. And uh, and I came down and I brought my wife and uh, in one of the breaks in the taping, he said, oh, would you guys like to come up and sit on the set for a minute? And we did. And uh, then he stepped away and the director said, OK, here's how you here's how you, you, you should act as an extra. And my wife and I looked at each other like, wait, what? And uh, in the third to last episode of the entire series, um, we uh, we were in Central Park. Uh, at one of the tables, and my wife uh, was constantly telling me that I was overacting, and it was very exciting. <laughs> uh, I also think the the rock band part's also interesting because it's really tied into the English major. Um, and I think this story, though, it, it's it's so Joe. So Joe, like, how are those two things related? Uh, sure. One of the things I learned when I entered my MBA program at the Wharton School is the Wharton School is not designed for English majors like I was. It is not designed for them at all. It is a hardcore quantitative program uh, for people who process data at high speeds. And I was not that. I, uh, I, so luckily, I found someone else who, uh, who, needed, who needed an outlet uh, at, at Wharton. And we started a rock band there. And for two years, we and a bunch of friends uh, you know, made music and it saved me. It, uh, it really kept me sane through the two years, uh, in the MBA program. And, uh, we, you know, a few decades later, in fact, it was exactly 25 years after we founded it, uh, this summer in quarantine, we all did one of those remote quarantine videos, music videos where, you know, each person is doing their part from their home and it was super fun. Yeah, I think we're going to have to share a link to that um, in this yeah. uh, episode. Just forgive the voice. It's rusty. Yeah. It's rusty after 25 years. But uh, but but uh, yeah, thank you. I, I loved it. It's awesome. That's okay. actually a good uh, good tie in with haptics, I imagine. <laughs> Virtual instruments. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Yeah, you, you got to have to gotta have that feedback. Um, Hey, and you know, I do kind of like the gravelly voice, you know, it, it adds. Something. Oh, no, don't. I know. He's already already. I saw him perk up. Uh, good thing for those of you listening because you can't see the video because you can just see Nero just getting ready to to pounce on this. Uh, it's a catnip for him. Um, excellent. Well, that, that's actually fascinating, uh, Joe. But so much of I think all this stuff is really tied together. Your 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 ability to to really pivot uh, and to really figure things out and so much of that is even, I think, about Haptex. So really, what is Haptex, a company, all really about? So Haptex is the world leader in providing industrial-grade haptics. And when I say haptics, what I mean is touch feedback, recreating the sense of touch when you're using some kind of device. And we like to call it industrial-grade haptics because we make a product called Haptex Gloves, and you, when you wear our gloves when you're in VR or some other applications, you can feel your 3D environment and the virtual objects in it with realism. They feel realistic. And uh, you know, we think of industrial-grade haptics as touch feedback that is so precise and so realistic that an enterprise customer or a government customer can depend on it 
to do mission critical work. So I'll give you a couple examples. The US Army is funding us to integrate Haptex gloves into their training programs for Army medics. They're doing more of them in VR and they want their, their medical staff to, to train successfully. So they're bringing in Haptex gloves. Uh, we have automaker customers around the world who use Haptex gloves to design their new car models faster and more cheaply because their designers can feel physically uh, these virtual 3D models that have been in their heads and then they come into CAD. And, uh, and now you can try the ergonomics, the comfort, the safety of, of the, the models. And um, we also have industrial customers uh, who are using Haptex gloves, and I can't wait to talk about this more later, uh, to remotely control robotic hands from a long distance. So this is enterprise grade haptics. And uh, I like wow. to distinguish it from, you know, vibrotactile feedback, which is what most people think of when they think of haptics. It's, it's kind of the same kind of buzzing that you get on your mobile phone when you hit the right key or you're holding a game controller and, you know, you're driving a car and, um, and you know, the car crashes and all the horror and terror of the bone crunching force uh, of that crash comes through in a little in the in the controller. And we think of that as very symbolic haptics. It's not it's not super realistic. Um, and you know, we have a different approach which uses microfluidics. It, it precisely directs compressed air into our gloves to 130 different points of feedback and it gets to be super realistic simulation of touch and you can just use your hands naturally to feel the virtual world. So that's what Haptex is all about. We're about eight years old. Uh, we've got employees in Seattle and California and uh, we give incredible demos, incredible VR and haptics demos. I could tell you some stories. So I remember the first time I saw your product and, uh, you know, we had to put two tables together to get, have it, have the machine stand on, uh, cause it wouldn't stand on one. The next time I saw it, it was the size of a little game console on Nintendo, right? It's amazing. Just the amount of machinery you've uh, packed into a very small device and the demos are amazing. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I feel like, uh, so, you know, it's funny, uh, Haptex demos are very much like your first VR demos. You remember that moment, right? It's such a visceral experience, not because of just a Haptex, but I remember uh, the, doing this demo, I think might have been, man, might have been like six years ago. It was really early. Um, the machine was big and we knew it needed to be big. It was totally fine. Um, every, you know, the exoskeleton is super exposed. And you you see all these things, and especially uh, you're very used to looking at prototypes. So you kind of just disregard a lot of things. Yeah. So you're really about the experience. I remember feeling ice melt in my hand. Mm -hmm. And I felt the water drip down my hands. And it just messed me. It was amazing. And then pretty soon, there's another demo where a dragon uh, starts flying and it breathes flame into your hand and you feel the heat dissipate into your fingertips where the center was very hot but it was very accurate into what i was watching and then of course the kicker the spider walking across your hand um, all those things you just realize kind of force feedback but this was not that uh, and this was such an amazing amazing experience that even visual fidelity could be a lot less uh, but you just felt it uh, it's such such a powerful thing which is also why it was so amazing to me to watch how long these things take, right? Um, how, how long it takes for these things to get adopted. Um, and it you know, almost kind of begs the question, as we look at controllers and touch technology, 
you know, hand tracking is starting to take off. Uh, but what does that do for haptics and, and uh, physical input devices? Does that make physical input devices a thing of the past? No, uh, absolutely not. Um, but before I, you know, before I get into why, you know, I, I, I want to be clear that haptics is behind the visuals and the audio in terms of maturity and development. You know, ha haptics is, is a hard, difficult problem to solve. Um, you've got this incredible system in your body of skin and bones and muscles and nerves that are very used to feeling the real world and they're very hard to fake out. Uh, you know, with, with simulation. Um, and, and we are behind kind of the audio and the visual side of VR. Um, we're at an earlier stage, but, but I believe that, that touch is super important for realism and immersion and presence uh, in, in VR, especially enterprise VR. Um, if, you know, it's like a three-legged stool. You, you, you can't take away one of the legs, um, you know, with the whole thing you know, falling over. And touch is like is right there with audio and visual. So think about, you know, right after you put a headset on, what's the first thing that most people do? What's the first thing, if you remember, that you did? Most people, you know, they see the, the beautiful 3D world around them. And then they look down at their hands and go, you know, do I have hands? Yeah. Can I use them? Now, how do they work? Wait a minute. Am I, am I having to pull triggers and push buttons to get these things to work? Or do they just work? God created you know, hands to be the world's best input device. And you know, you don't want to take that away if you're trying to make someone feel like they're they're really living and interacting in this, you know, kind of incredible spatial environment. So, you know, to, to your question about hand tracking, uh, let me say that there are different applications that need different levels of, you know, of haptics and and hand presence. Um, there might be some applications where hand tracking is is okay. And it's all you need. Like if all you want to do is wave at other avatars or you want to uh, point at things to like select a, a, a menu button, um, hand tracking is probably okay, it's probably fine. But if you want to feel like you're really interacting with the world around you and enterprise customers are, are gonna try to get something productive out of it, um, you've got to have realistic touch feedback, physical input. Like, let me give you an example. Let's say you're training a maintenance worker in VR. Uh, how to repair a fighter jet engine, or you're training a surgeon uh, how to operate, or you're training a person who's at the controls of a nuclear power plant. You know, these are mission critical jobs. Do you really want someone to learn how to use their hands in these jobs using hand tracking only? You know, or do you want them to kind of uh, have realistic touch and repeat and practice these skills and feel things realistically until they've built actual muscle memory? Uh, personally, you know, when I'm near a nuclear reactor, I want that person to have trained with realistic haptics, not hand tracking. Uh, that's a really great point. There, there's uh, so much uh, when it comes to the training, the muscle reaction, uh, that touch is really important. Um, I loved your car example as well to design a vehicle. There's there's so many different, uh, let's say, interior types, um, and you're as you're trying to figure out these different materials, especially as a uh, car companies are also becoming a lot more eco friendly. Right. So they want to actually have the like the, the faux wood or the faux leather there, not just for cost reasons, but just sometimes it's also just a more environmental friendly way to do that. But you can't go to China every single time to to check out these materials or or to Europe or these different places. Um, and, and that's kind of where that level of realism, why the force feedback just doesn't work, because I've felt things using your technology that I could actually distinguish between real wood grain, 
fake wood grain and everything in between. And that that to me was a, just such a powerful way to really bring that home. And, and you know, VR is a component of that, but not the most important thing to that. It's it's interesting too that you know, right right now the focus is on enterprise and you know this high fidelity. But I'm also thinking about in the future uh, accessibility, folks that can't see but they can still be immersed uh, and and be able to touch. You know, obviously, like reading Braille would be kind of interesting, uh, but that could open up a lot of opportunities in the future as well. Yeah, we've been, uh, we've been contacted by a number of people who are uh, partially sighted or or completely blind. And they've said the devices they use to interact with the world um, just don't cut it. I mean, there, there's actually a you know a, a class of devices where where they're getting feedback on their tongue, which they don't really like, um, and they would much rather be able to wear gloves uh, to tell them what's happening in the world around them, and um, you know the, the incredible precision of of haptics like ours. Um, which, as I said, you know, give you 130 different points of feedback across your fingertips and palm. That's, you know, that's got the potential to someday deliver that kind of message. Now, Joe, your haptics are that you provide are not just pressure, right? Because um, we've talked a little bit about ice melting and the dragon fire. For the audience who who is new to this, can you kind of go through the different types of haptics that um, have the spaces split up? Absolutely. So we look at the four modes of haptic feedback as tactile feedback, force feedback, vibrational or vibro tactile feedback, and uh, thermal feedback. Those are the four big classes. And uh, we have experimented in our lab with and, and built products around all four of those kinds of feedback. Right now, we are focused mostly on tactile and force feedback. Those are the two most important ones. Um, if you're, you know, any hardware company needs to, to look to the minimum viable product. And uh, we know that we can do thermal feedback, but it was not a requirement for our minimum viable product. So we actually took the thermal feedback out of our first product. One of our engineers called it as easy as, as operating a water park inside of a computer because we, you know, we used both hot and cold water uh, to deliver those sensations. And that was something we decided to simplify out of our first product. And so, you know, we've also tried the tactile feedback, which is that feeling of contact you get on the on the front surface, the palm and fingertips of your hand that, you know, when you sort of grip something or touch something, your your skin is dis, is displaced. It's deformed uh, w when it comes in contact with an object in the real world. And and we're able to simulate that that skin displacement on the front of your hand, that tactile feedback extremely well. That, so that, that's where we really shine is, is that tactile feedback. And then the force feedback is what we think of on the back of the hand. It's like tendons that can stop the motion of your fingers when they are gripping uh, what should feel like a solid object in VR. You know, when you're holding something or touching something uh, and, and poking it, you, your, your fingers should stop when they hit the solid surface. Mm -hmm or if it's a spongy uh, kind of soft object, they should kind of feel that squishiness. And so we have a, an, a little bit of an exoskeleton on the back of the hand that, uh, that, that can stop the motion of your fingers and provide that force feedback. And those two things combined are what, you know, what make Haptex the most realistic solution. 
So, so for example, um, you know, the first demo I had of your product was uh, there was a deer or a gazelle walking around in my hand, and then it turned around and it sat down. And the difference here would be that tactile feedback are its hooves, and then That's the force right. feedback is its, its belly sitting when it goes to sit down. No, I would call uh, what you just described as uh, entirely about great tactile feedback. The okay. fact that you could feel each hoof, uh, and we even, as Vinay said, have a spider uh, that crawls across your hand and you can feel each one of its eight legs. Um, that's great tactile feedback. And when it and it and when the creature lies down, you know, in your palm, um, that's still, um, you know, a, a similar kind of tactile feedback sensation. If you were trying to uh, grip the spider and, and you wanted to kind of feel the edges of it as solid when you grip it, that's force feedback. Okay. And I love kind of what you talked about, Joe, this, this trade-off. Um, and I have to agree with you when he talks about MVP. Uh, as a person who's always uh, so passionate about getting the right product at the door, uh, building on iterations, but also making sure that you're just focused on what the customer actually needs. Uh, there's a point in, in which, I mean, the examples of kind of heat and ice kind of melting, while those things are great, how often is that actually really important? Right, especially when you're talking about these experiences, um, and there's some there's a complexity. You you mentioned R and D, you mentioned labs. This is so much. Uh, I think what what we experience as an XR industry, we get so excited about the opportunity that we want to run, um, and it's we're talking about your this company is eight years old of of development and R and D. Right, it doesn't really just happen overnight. And this is kind of why we wanted to actually speak with you today as well, and and really do this leadership series. Is it takes a lot of leadership to to stay the course uh, and to make these decisions. And really wanted to get your perspective around, you know, R and D is such a core component for XR's companies building hardware. Well, what is really your philosophy on staying focused on the mission, but still being able to pay the bills? Yeah, I'm a chief revenue officer, and um, and I think a lot of chief revenue officers might think, you know, mostly about sales and. And, um, you know, and they might think of R&D as, as like a line item on the budget or like a box on the org chart. But um, but I think of R&D as fundamental to our co company culture. It's like our ethos. It's like our personality. And, you know, <laughs> done right, R&D is going to pay the bills. Not today, but sooner than you think. And, you know, really respecting R&D, not going over the line and, you know, and, and, and incorporating everything, every feature you might want, but, but paying attention to the important R&D is critical. I'll give you an example. Uh, for my first two or three years at Haptex, we were 100% focused on Haptex gloves being used in VR. Um, but our R&D team they had this kind of itch that they wanted to scratch. Like they had this hunch that our gloves could be used totally outside of VR to control robot hands from a distance. And this was a, a, you know, a bit of a crazy idea. Um, and they were pursuing this, this field of telerobotics as, as a hobby. And my first thought was like, you know, eh, it doesn't really pay the bills. Why should I care? Um, but, you know, as a company, we love R&D. We thrive on it and, and the in innovation and the creativity. So we funded their efforts. We created partnerships to support it. We took our precious marketing dollars and we dedicated some of them to showing the early results to customers. And fast forward, and now that little robotics project has become a major line of business for Haptex. And you know, so we're always thinking about R and D and 
and um, you know how we can fund it smartly. So we look to government grants. You know, we look to pilot projects we can do with customers. And um, you know, I will even show some of our R and D to customers that I trust. You know, confidentially, and I want them to understand that. You know, when you invest in us and our product, you can be confident that the dollars you're putting in are going toward a platform which scales. And um, you know, they'll see our vision and they'll see our determination to really innovate and meet their needs. So done right, R and D is you know critical and um, and and uh, and your future. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's such a challenge to be able to kind of have that patience and stomach that because there's a lot still to learn. Um, and your your first product is doesn't always necessarily mean, mean that's going to be what you base your a lot of your uh, future roadmap off of. Um, you know, it's uh, I feel like we're in a stage of these mini science experiments, right? In terms of the products we're building out, um, and that that continuous iteration understanding um, is super super important. Um, but you know, this this definitely isn't your first rodeo. You've had great success in your career, uh, including going from an established enterprise giant to in Microsoft to a hardware startup in a very nascent industry. How much of your previous experience has mattered uh, at Haptex? Well, I had a really good run at Microsoft, and uh, that was super helpful to me. You know, before Microsoft, I had founded two startups, and you know, I think that was equally important. When I step back and think about what prepares someone to succeed in a startup, you know, or, you know, or, or maybe a very entrepreneurial, high-growth, big company, you know, I, I think about someone's training and experience, but also the habits that are formed during that experience and and their nature, their their mindset. And, um, you know, working at a large company really can provide a great background. I would say that my decade plus at Microsoft really exposed me to how a top quality company operates. And, you know, I got to work with world class engineers. I got to experience our partners up close. You know, but I also probably formed some bad habits working there, to be honest with you. You know, when I think of bad habits uh, in terms of whether they would be, you know, helpful to or antithetical to healthy behavior at a startup. Um, you know, as an example, I, I got used to relying on an entire army of people to handle things. You know, these are people who stay in their swim lanes. They're they're taught and trained to stay in their swim lanes. And and when you need a model, you know, analyzed financially, you go to finance. When you need, you know, privacy considered, you go to the privacy team. This is great for a you know a, a global company like Microsoft. Not so good, you know, for for a, a startup. So I kind of had to unlearn a lot of things when I got to Haptex. But um, but again, I'm also thinking about you know not just your training and your habits, but your your mindset. And um, mine is very uh, entrepreneurial. I remember at my final job interview, it was a lunch, um, you know, with the four top people at Haptex, you know, and they, they asked me about working in a startup. And I said, let me put it to you this way. Working in a startup should be probably the second most visceral, intense activity that you can do, maybe after like fighting your way out of a jungle. Like you've got to love, you know, the freedom to go get shit done and you can't wait for middle management to like review it and approve it. You got to be the person who celebrates your first few sales deals like you just won the lottery, you know, and, and you're going to feel, you know, when your company hits a rough patch and we all do, you know, you're going to feel like your life is over and you got to, you know, sort of smooth your way through it. So, you know, having the right mindset is probably the most important thing. So I think it, it all prepared me for this role.
and I'm grateful for it. You know, Chris DeVore, uh, who used to lead tech stars in Seattle and now has gone on to other things, always likes to say um, difference between uh, uh, working at an enterprise versus a startup is you learn to um, learn by you learn to manage by influence at a, at a at enterprise, whereas you learn to learn by inspiration at a startup. Would you concur with that? I, I think it kind of bears well with what you just said, but uh, more on the management side. You know, at a startup, I would agree that that you know you're not trying to influence major organizations the way you are at uh, you know at, at a large company, but um, but there's a fair amount of influence at a startup too. Um, there's someone else in a startup, you know, who's not you, who's doing a critical job and who whose buy-in you need to get mm-hmm. the company moving in the right direction. And those skills of persuasion uh, apply very much in, in a startup as they do in a big company. You know, our, our engineers, they're great about listening to our, our sales team about what the product needs to do in order to sell. But um, but but they don't take everything, you know, at face value. They 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 have their own opinions. So, you know, being able to gently kind of influence them and move move them, you know, is is critical. It's not just about hand waving and inspiration. Mm. They want to see, you know, data and hear persuasive arguments so that, you know, so that we all move together as a team. Yeah, I think uh, it's a great point about actually having to unlearn certain habits, but you know, we're, we're people. And I think some of those habits, it's just very normal uh, to be able to kind of come from that. Uh, what I do appreciate uh, oftentimes, you know, in, in XR startups, we're kind of an interesting space. Yes, we're an emerging category, we're an emerging industry, but just requires a lot of investment and just also a lot of experience. So it's kind of this interesting space where you do see a lot of tenure um, in a lot of the XR startups. You see that in cloud startups as well, because you kind of almost have to establish when you think about when you're going to get ready to scale, right? There's going to be at a point in which you're going to have to do a lot more faster and and knowing that you're going to build that eventual habit or that muscle memory, that that infrastructure uh, really helps when you've already seen kind of how that machine actually works. Uh, but, you know, I'm, and I'm sure when it comes to these ma- many of these different decisions that you have to have to do these trade-offs with, pivoting is really one of them, right? It, it is really hard to stay focused when everything seems like an opportunity. Um, and, you know, you kind of almost you feel like you're you're chasing kind of the shiny object. But but when do you do that? I think the decision to to pivot is such an important one because pivots, they're, they're not obvious, right? You don't always know when you need to pivot because every day feels like there's an opportunity to pivot. You may have this great deal that comes your way um, or you may identify this problem through your R&D team or through your sales teams. But when do you what do you pivot? How do you know you need to pivot? Yeah, by definition, I would say a pivot is a brave decision. It's a non-obvious decision. You know, the choice that you make to pivot is, it's not obvious to the conventional outside world yet. And that's what makes it so brave. But, you know, a great CEO wears like different glasses than everyone else at the company that can see they're like binoculars they can see farther out into the future than the rest of the company and um you know the rest of the company might be super focused on their objectives for this period and the ceo you know is seeing all the implications and the repercussions of those objectives and they know when they can see the turn that's coming in the road 
and how critical it is to react and jump when they're a great CEO. I mean, Haptex, to be fair, you know, hasn't really had a massive pivot yet. It's not like we were making, you know, software for measuring the size of potato chips and we jumped into Haptex gloves or something. But um, but we've gone through a few big strategic shifts during my time as a company. When we started out, uh, our original vision was to make this impressive full body, you know, haptic suit and a full body exoskeleton. And, the, you know, we, we wanted to build the holodeck. And, you know, we, we realized that as exciting as that was, we had to scale back massively and look at a problem that while super hard to solve, like basically tricking your hands into believing they were touching objects, you know, focusing on only the hands was a, you know, what was, was an urgent strategic shift that we needed to make um, because it had the, the earliest kind of market need, the earliest market payoff, and it was more achievable. So we scaled back our ambitions massively within the first few months of, of jo my joining the company. And, and we also, you know, pivoted um, our customer focus. Like when I first joined, we were thinking about gaming and entertainment and the future of arcades and theme parks. And um, we pivoted hard to industry and enterprise customers. And when, this was early 2017. And let me tell you, that was not cool in early 2017 to be about enterprise. Back then, everyone was thinking about, you know, VR in every home and, you know, you know, you know, a billion people in VR, which some people are still thinking about, which is fine. But um, but, you know, we, we just decided to get laser focused on on enterprise. Um, and I think it was a super foresightful decision and it's really uh, paid off for us. Yeah, la laser focus is great. Uh, clarity is always uh, amazing in organizations, especially when you have so many different components, such a long lead times. Um, speaking of clarity, there's a company you may be familiar with, Axon VR. Um, let's let's talk about kind of a name change, right? I mean, there's so many implications, uh, and we're not even talking about uh, SEO. I mean, how does a name change bring alignment uh, to our organization? And, and and yeah, let's talk about why that happened and what the, what the impact of that was. Yeah, um, our corporate name was Axon VR uh, when I joined the company, and uh, it was perfect for us at that point. We we were dreaming of the most kind of immersive products you could make for VR. And we, you know, Axon is, is part of your nervous system. And we, you know, we thought that it tied in well. And we have this cute little, you know, sort of logo creature that we called Axley, who is like a, you know, fit into the logo. It was, just, it, it was a great brand. And then, um, you know, I don't want to talk too much about it, but another company which may have Axon in the name uh, called with what I'll say were concerns about potential confusion uh, between our companies and our brands. And at first we were resistant and then we, we thought about it and we thought, all right, well, this may be an opportunity for us as we, as we think about a new brand um, to expand the way we're thinking about us ourselves. And, you know, we became Haptex, which is a play, an obvious play on the word haptics. And it helped us kind of broaden our outlook on what we build. And, and, and that became very, you know, prophetic because over time we, we expanded beyond VR uh, into haptics for robotics and, and maybe someday other things. So, you know, when you rebrand, you kind of get to reposition yourself a bit. Um, and um, and that's, you know, I think we're in a better place because of it. 
Yeah, I love how you said yeah. you know this is more than just VR, and and the, and I and I think so much of these technologies that we're building, we're starting to realize that now, right? While there's a core component to this, uh, I think what's common is you're 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 trying to allow people to be people, uh, regardless of the medium. Um, and I and I think that's one of the nice things about seeing this industry evolve, is that XR, while it means AR, VR, and MR, it's also starting to mean other things as well. And I find a lot of successful companies are able to do more than just be HMD based. I, I was racking my brain earlier uh, this morning trying to remember what your old name was, and haptics have just taken hold so well that it's you know it just fits with with who you are, in a way that Axon was more open to interpretation. To. It, it's good to be honest with yourself about the equity that your brand has. I mean, you are as a company and a startup are are so close to your brand and love it so much, and you type that name every day. And you, you know, we, we, I think we're lucky enough to step back and say, whatever equity we built in this brand is not large enough to prevent us from doing the right thing and rebranding. And, um, you know, sure, you print new business cards and you change your website and um, it's, um, it's, it's worth it in many cases. I had a quick question about the, you know, speaking of pivot and also speaking about large company culture, enterprise culture versus startup. Uh, working with ANA, all Nippon Airways, to me, they just seem like very interesting company in the sense that they adopt and are so interested in emerging technology. You know, they've done things with XPRIZE, they've done things with virtual humans and telerobotics. Like how, how, how did that relationship happen? Did you, did they reach out to you or vice versa or? man in the middle introduced you? Yeah, I am amazed by ANA, All Nippon Airways in Japan. Uh, I cannot imagine an American, uh, an American airline doing the kinds of things that ANA has done. And I, when, I'm, when I'm talking about ANA um, and what they've done, they have envisioned a future for travel, which is based much more on technology than on getting on an airplane. Um, and and they're investing in that. They're thinking about avatars. They're thinking about you know sort of digital or virtual representations of yourself um, in other remote places. The same kinds of thing, reasons you get on an airplane and fly somewhere. You know you can do those same things possibly someday in the future as an avatar. And what would that look like? And would it be as fulfilling? So um, they're putting energy behind um, what they call robotic. I don't even know if they call it this, but I, I think of it as robotic tourism. You know, can you go fishing, um, you know, in, in, in some magical place that, you, you know, you'd have to get on an airplane to go to, but, but do it while wearing a headset and you see your 360 degree environment and you feel the, the fishing rod and the tension when you catch the fish. And by the way, there's, there's a computer generated version of this. And there's also a robotic version of this where you literally control a fishing rod and you go fishing somewhere exciting and, and you may actually catch a fish. I, I suppose they would mail it to you. But, um, the, you know, the um, they think more, much more broadly than tourism, too. They think about they are Japanese, by the way, and the Japanese love their robots. But they think about, um, you know, robotics for elder care. They don't have enough people to care for all the, the aging population of that country. And Japanese people love and, and trust robots more, I think, than, than many other cultures. And they envision a humanoid robot 
um, you know, living with people who, who are older and, and, and need monitoring and need companionship. And they, they see a day when, when an avatar, it might be in the form of a loved one, or it might be a trusted medical care provider, taking care of, of, of an elderly person. So I, I have huge respect for ANA and what they've done. And I'm grateful that we met them through one of our partners, Shadow Robot Company, um, who, who provides these dexterous robotic hands that are part of our telerobot solution. And, uh, and, and ANA said, you know, we are interested in funding this incredible telerobotics research that Haptex and Shadow Robot are doing. And, um, and, and, you know, a great relationship started. And, you know, we, we've created this telerobot solution in partnership with them. And, um, you know, I'm just so excited to see where that goes. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, absolutely multifaceted. That, that is such an interesting example. I personally would love to get a robot that can just do laundry. I'd, I'd be sold. Um, that, that would, I'd be convinced of that. Um, you know, we've I've often said that uh, we as an industry has spent a long time trying to tell somebody they have a VR problem, right, or an AR problem, and then saying, here's then here's the solution. Um, clearly, that's just not the most efficient way to do it, but we get so excited about the future that we have to tell somebody how the present just is not working out. Uh, I feel like we're finally at a point right now, especially with the pandemic, where we're actually experiencing that actual gap in current technologies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we're starting to understand that the way the tools that we have today are just not working well enough. Uh, we're not connected in the way we want to be connected. Um, but you know the pandemic has been some challenging times, and, and running any business during COVID uh, is a challenge. Let alone running a hardware startup in an emerging industry. Um, how are you guys holding up uh, during this time? Yeah, um, I think we are doing very well. Um, I am. I'm under the circumstances. You know, things are are really good uh, for Haptex right now. To be fair, there are challenges. I would think our main challenge is that it's not easy to sell VR and especially haptics without hands-on demos. And, um, you know, right now, you know, people barely want to be in the same room, much less sharing equipment. So, you know, I, I, I miss traveling to my customers. I never thought I would say this, but I miss trade shows. Um, <laughs> you know, and um, you know, the good news for us is that we're really making incredible progress with our tech um, and our products. And we've got some super exciting things to announce in coming months. And, um, you know, because of that, I think our customers have really stuck with us. And, um, you know, speaking of challenges, customers are probably facing more budget scrutiny in a COVID world than they were before. There's a lot of funds and budgets that are being redirected to, you know, to sort of pandemic related things or, or just trying to conserve cash. So it makes hardware investments a bit of a tougher sell for our customers. So, you know, so so that's, you know, that that makes it difficult. But you know, all in all, Haptex is, has reason to be really thrilled with the commercial results of 2020, um, all things considered. That sounds amazing, Joe. But I'm also, you know, what I've been hearing, too, from, from some of your partners from the industry, that there's also a lot of things picking up for you guys as well, uh, specifically around maybe, like, is it telepresence? Uh, is, is that the right way to kind of put that? Yeah, yeah. There is a very large shift that the, the pandemic has accelerated toward, you know, what I think of as a virtual first approach. Um, you know, it, it takes me back to when Google was the first one I remember to say they were going to start doing mobile first development, which was a big deal back then. You know, the world had been designed for PCs 
and they saw the future and it was mobile. And the, you know, even if mobile wasn't quite there yet, they were going to start pushing their development in that direction. And a lot of companies, almost everybody followed. Um, and I think the pandemic has caused that kind of tectonic shift where you know we've got more reason now to work remotely. Um, and you know, companies don't really have a choice but to think about you know, how to accomplish their business in a more virtual way. Uh, that doesn't require you to be next to each other unless it's absolutely necessary. And so you're getting just more trials of VR. You're getting more investment. Um, you're getting more motivation and openness to being together in virtual environments. But sadly, today, virtual, you know, virtual togetherness is often just, you know, being in, in a, a Zoom or a Teams call. It's like on a flat 2D screen. And there are real limits to that. You know, we don't want to kind of feel like we're living our lives, you know, peering through this small little box on a screen. Like we we want to be with our colleagues and 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 have realistic interactions with them. And so, you know, that's that's what a lot of companies in the XR space are doing is is trying to build out collaboration tools and you know and realistic haptics as part of that is is what we're all about. And you're gonna, you know, we show our customers. One of the things we're working on, which is multiple users in the same virtual environment, working together physically, collaborating, um, and the physics feel real. You know, you can toss objects back and forth and 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 touch and, and interact with the same things at the same time. You can even, you know, high five each other and rock, paper, scissors we show. And our customers freak out because this is the future. Um, it's virtual collaboration with physical interactions, and it's really, really exciting. And and it 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 extends beyond just VR. It extends into robotics and taking employees in the time of a pandemic, and and for other reasons too, sort of out of the dangerous jobs. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Like the the meat packing industry, you know, is trying to take some of their you know their workers out of these jobs where they're 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 crammed into this you know kind of meat processing line and they'd rather they'd rather do the work with robots you know um either controlled by humans from afar or or maybe through you know kind of ai and and you know kind of automation but but they want to take the their, their workers out of that job you know there there are companies that want to take um some of their maintenance employees out of the the terrifying you know high risk maintenance jobs that they do and robots can do those jobs a lot better and so, um, you know, th there, there's just this massive new development of telepresence. Um, and it's not just, you know, Haptex, it's part of it. Of course, there are tons of different technologies that are developing around it. You've got machine vision, really cool machine vision uh, startups that we're seeing that, you know, that give, you know, kind of you, the user, this 180 degree or 360 degree view of, of a, a remote environment. There's just a lot of really cool stuff happening. It's it's moving way up the Gartner, you know, hype cycle curve way fast. And, um, you know, and like you said, like we're, we're not really convincing our, our, our enterprise and industrial customers to pay attention to us anymore. Like we're just trying to, you know, keep up. We're just hustling yeah. to kind of get them what they need. Joe, when I, when I, um, I, I'm always trying to think about how this technology moves from training to planning to operations. And you brought up a really interesting point there, because when I think of selling training applications, it's really about environments that is too expensive to train, the equipment's not available or it's too dangerous. 
And what I'm hearing you right now going through with uh, um, uh, use of haptics for telerobotics and uh, um, dangerous environments to work in, it's really kind of jumping that into operations, right? Using a uh, um, enabling technology so that you can use the same use cases, right? Uh, dangerous, expensive, or or, or uh, limited availability, and now make that available for frontline users. That's really fascinating. Yeah, they say that uh, you know you 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 can use robotics, telerobotics, to take people out of the jobs that are dangerous, dirty, or dull. Love I mean, it. it's it's like um, you know there are jobs that you just, people just don't want to be up close doing, and mm-hmm. um, and very operational. And by the way, you know there's also um, an efficiency you can gain. When you you use telerobotics in a, in a manufacturing, uh, it may not be super dangerous or super dirty or right. dull. It may just be you know more efficient for someone right. to be controlling you know remotely uh, a, a, a you know an, an element of a, a manufacturing line or a maintenance line. Um, and so yes, there's training people to do their jobs up close, and then there's enabling them to do their their jobs from afar. But um, you know, before we couldn't even dream of doing anything like this, and now with VR and with haptics, um, you know, it's 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 not just a, a you know a possibility; it's it's happening, and it's it's really exciting. And that sense of touch is that critical enabler. The right. sense of touch is not everything, but is an absolutely critical ingredient because it is what um, enables you to not just learn about the skill you want to, to have, but to, to practice doing it. Or, and it's mm-hmm. not just, in a, it's, um, think of robotics, uh, on the other hand, as, as like, you know, the end effectors at the end of robot arms have, have traditionally been these big, chunky, two-finger grippers. That's basically what a robot has, has had for generations. And now there are robot hands, you know, from our, our partners at Shadow Robot Company and others that have, you know, five digits each with six degrees of freedom. And, you know, these are these are dexterous hands that can do what human hands do. And, you know, the reason they came to us was there was no other company that could make an operator feel what the robot hand was feeling in real time and get the right sensations to be able to use those dexterous hands from afar. And it was like a match made in heaven. And now um, those robot hands can do what a human would do from a long, safe distance away. So, you know, it, it, it's science fiction that's now real. And, um, you know, because of the pandemic, everyone's paying attention to it. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. That's, that's exciting. Uh, I feel almost feel like uh, to, to Nira's question about how important our touch, it's, uh, it's almost like uh, it's an important ingredient, kind of like if you were making pizza. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. the, the pizza analogy. Yeah. Go for it, Vinay. <laughs> yeah, no, I we talk about kind of the chicken and egg scenario, right? And I and I feel like a lot of these are we're we're still so early that you know it's it's like asking somebody who's trying to make start a pizza business, um, you know, how to make what's more important than a cheese pizza, the the cheese, the crust, um, or the sauce. And at, we're at a point where they're all of these things are important. We can't even talk about pepperoni yet because we're still trying to figure out those three. Uh, and this is an analogy that I think continues to have legs. This is, I think, this is turning into my Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, <laughs> to, just, to, you're, now you're just asking for me to come back with this Springsteen yeah, comment. I've been, I've been good so far. Yeah, it's, I've, I'm poking the bear. I realize it. Um, 
again, just super fascinating, Joe, um, all of this is just being able to just pull this stuff together. But, you know, in, in looking at the leaders in XR series, and, and there's so much about these decisions we have to make uh, that are, are super critical for, for leaders. And, and leaders don't necessarily mean somebody who has to run an organization. Uh, you can be a leader of one, right, and through the decisions you need to make. But so staying focused, but being ready for opportunity is something that keeps leaders of organizations up at night. How do you balance the two? That question reminds me of my mom and the lessons that she tried to teach me when I was learning to drive. She said, you got to drive defensively. And I said, what does that mean? She said, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. You've got to keep your eyes focused 20 feet in front of the car and also 200 feet in front of the car. It's, it's just, it's how you drive. And, you know, I think that applies that, that idea is, you know, kind of really understanding. Everyone at Haptex understands how we define short-term success. We know what our technology needs to do 20 feet in front of us. We know what sales we need to go out and get. But we're also thinking about, you know, what's possible down the road and where we need to be, you know, directing ourselves down the road. You know, the, the 200 feet in front of us concept. And, you know, so we put a lot of, of creative energy into into trying to line up those kinds of 200 feet in front of us opportunities. And a great example of that is this one and a half million dollar grant that we applied for with two university partners, University of Virginia, uh, excuse me, Virginia Tech and with uh, University of Florida. And we just won it uh, from the National Science Foundation, their National oh, Robotics Initiative. Awesome. Thank you. And what they're going to pay us to do is build a platform that is the closest thing to the holodeck that we can imagine. It's it's this full body haptic system with force feedback on your upper limbs and your lower limbs. So imagine your weight born on a system, on a platform uh, with an exoskeleton attached to your arms and your legs. And when you wanna walk up virtual stairs or you wanna kick a virtual football where you want to swing a virtual golf club um, or a sword, you know, it's more than just haptics on your skin. Your body needs to feel it. You need force feedback on your limbs so that those actions feel physically right and realistic. And this is, you know, super exciting. And it's something that we had punted, you know, years ago, uh, you know, and, and thought we, we wouldn't get a chance to build. But we always had our eye on that, you know, 200 feet in front of us. How do we get back to that? And, you know, we're grateful to the National Science Foundation because it's 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 getting us back to and helping to fund our original vision for realistic full body haptics. So, you know, I think my mom would be you know happy that we're kind of super focused on 20 feet in front of us, but also aiming for the big, you know, kind of home runs that we can win, you know, if we're, if we're also looking 200 feet ahead. Definitely congratulations uh, to, to you and the team and also uh, for the R&D team to, to continue to maintain that vision and, and the ability to, to do both, right, to pay the bills and to, to build the future. Uh, always a challenge, but congrats. Thank you. When I, uh, you know, had that lunch with the four top executives uh, at Haptex, I, I one of the things I did not ask them but should have asked them is, would everyone please get out of the room and can I sit down and have lunch with the director of R&D? Because, you know, it's just so important to have great, uh, great people in R&D doing, you know, doing exciting, big things and, and thinking about it the right way. And uh, luckily, our company has that. Um, and uh, and I, I, I probably should have asked about it back then. So, Joe, 
That that's really interesting because I, I, I think of your company and I think of a lot of government use cases and um, a challenge that um, many startups that get into government work um, have to think through. And I, I know you've thought through this is the challenge of around the commercial eyesability of what you're building. You know, governments have very particular needs and sometimes that doesn't translate as well into I mean, either the commercial market's not ready for it or it's just too too niche. You know, and as you're thinking through this application, uh, the NSF grant, and also the, the earlier dream, the vision of, of, of the, the holosuit, how how do you weigh that, right? Because um, the last thing you want to do is, um, you know, to quote Springsteen, is a dream alive if it doesn't come true or is it something worse? Right. Oh, so I knew you I knew you're pushing this episode you longer, longer so you can get that. I saw you looking at the clock. There you go. No, but it's true. If if you pivot too deeply into fulfilling that dream, that can come at the detriment or at the at the expense of uh everything else. And if that fails, what does that do to the company? Right? How do you think through that? I think the two potential problems in pursuing a big idea uh, are number one, you know, you need to find the funds to to yeah. fund it. You need to hire the people and you know have them spend the hours to go after it. And the other, you know, potential problem is the the change in focus that does. The, and so you you have to ask yourself, how am I going to pay for this? And mm-hmm. is it going to take my eye off the ball? And the great thing about a grant from the government is that it it pays for you to staff up and put energy um, that you wanted to spend anyway uh, someday, you know, and, and, and it funds that work. And, you know, we always have to ask ourselves when we're applying for these things, if we win it, will it take our eye off the ball or, mm-hmm. or will it will it just move us, to, you know, in the direction, you know, we want to be going anyway. And in this case, we knew this is, you know, our vision and and we'd be delighted to get there faster. And, um, you know, there's sort of a third element to your question, which is, you know, are you going to have the rights, you know, to your technology at the end of it? Um, or is it going to be superly, super narrowly defined for only a government use case? And are they going to try to take away your rights? And, you know, to be perfectly honest with you here on the podcast, as we wrap up, I'm still learning a lot about about this field. And I probably need to talk to you, Nirav, and your company um, you know, a, a, about how to approach that correctly. But we understand that we will end up with the right kinds of, of rights and opportunities in, in the SIBRs that we've won. And, and this grant, we will not be prevented from commercializing this technolo- these technologies. So, so we're, we're excited about it. That's great. D- definitely a, a good and a question and a heavy one at that. Um, you know, and I think we're starting to wrap up this episode, but I wanted to kind of leave the listeners with really kind of maybe a little more advice from, from you, Joe. We, you know, when we, let's maybe even pause for a minute and while we're pausing, please subscribe to the podcast, but let's, uh, let's really kind of think about our future. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to just be able to snap our fingers and undo the current challenges that we have, but you know, but we have to be prepared. What advice will you give your future self and other leaders out there to be ready for this new reality? Well, I may not be able to quote Bruce Springsteen, but uh, I do love movies and movie lines. And one of my favorite movies growing up was uh, was the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Ferris oh, wow. has this famous line uh, he, where he says, 
life moves pretty fast. And if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And, you know, I think about the lessons in that line uh, on a couple of different levels. One of them very philosophical, uh, and, and it reflects kind of the pandemic uh, reality that we're living in right now. And is that everything in some ways has really slowed down because of the pandemic. I don't, you know, I, I don't know if, if you've seen this, but um, it's kind of a potential silver lining in it for me. I, I, I can't believe how fast I was running before March of 2020. I kind of never knew when I was going to be home, when I was going to be on the road. You know, the closest thing I had to reflection was like when the Wi-Fi stopped working on a plane and I actually had to sit quietly for an hour or two. Um, and, you know, the pandemic has kind of taken me out of the grind in that way. And it's given me, and I hope it's given other people in the listening audience, like the chance to consider our priorities. Um, you know, I know we've had great discussions as a company like, hey, now let's use this opportunity, this slowness to kind of make sure, you know, do a true up, make sure we're on the right course with things. Um, and, um, you know, on a personal level, it's it's been really nice to to maybe reconnect with family and hobbies um, in a way on uh, during this slower time and and on a more macro level you know whole industries are are rethinking things they're forced to and it's kind of a great time to make a career change for some people or start a business and just think differently so you know I I definitely hope people will will be prepared by the future by taking advantage of of where we are you know at this moment but I also think about you know, that Ferris Bueller line in kind of more of a tactical way. You know, life moves fast, he said, and technology moves fast. And companies in the XR industry are creating these incredible, innovative spatial computing technologies. And, you know, I recommend, you know, to my customers and to anyone in the industry, keep your ear to the ground and keep investing aggressively in new XR tech. Um, and when I talk about investing aggressively, I'm like outside of your comfort zone, you know, try, try things. And if you don't, you might miss something really big. And, you know, this is something your competitors might be taking advantage of. So, you know, there's a virtual first approach that's coming. It's not a really if it's when and who's going to figure it out and really take advantage of it. So, you know, I would say, you know, to, to myself and uh, because it applies to, to startups as well, you know, and, and to, to bigger companies out there, you know, when someone comes to you with innovative technology and ideas that are going to make your business better and more virtual, don't miss them. That's wonderful advice and I really appreciate uh, your time here and also your insights and just all the work you've done uh, for the XR industry. Uh, you know, whenever companies are successful, uh, we're, we're all, we all become successful as a result. And, you know, most importantly too, you're you're building things that are improving people's lives, and I think that's why it's also so important uh, for for success to happen in this industry because this is much more than just um, a business model or something that's entertaining. This is it's a fundamental shift in how we will how we will do things for the future. Uh, so thanks so much, Joe, for for being our guest today. Uh, if there's uh, ways, are, are there some good ways that, that someone can get a, a hold of you or in touch with you? Absolutely. I put most of my energy into Twitter and LinkedIn, and I also lead our efforts uh, for Haptex. And Haptex, you know, puts its kind of social media energy into Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can search Haptex, or you can search Joe Michaels, you know, and Haptex on Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can connect with with the company and with with me in both places. That's wonderful, Joe. What's your Twitter handle? It is at Joe Mike. <laughs> 
which was my original Microsoft uh, alias, at J-O-E-M-I-C-H. Great. Thank you so much for that. And thank you, Nirav Kirby. Uh, and on behalf of Stephen, I am Vinay. Thank you guys so much for joining us in this episode of XRC Pod. You can find us wherever you find your uh, podcast. And so let's continue to inspire each other to build a better future. Thank you.